Hi everyone, welcome back to the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast. In today's episode, we cover the topic of orthopedic trauma found under the orthopedic section at MedBullets.com. Let's begin with a clinical snapshot. A healthy 25-year-old man is brought to the ED after falling out of a second floor window. He is supported by two friends. All appear to be inebriated with injected conjunctiva. The patient complains that his right thigh is in pain. He reports having landed on his feet. Primary survey is unremarkable. Blood pressure is 100 over 60. Pulse is 80 beats per minute. Respirations are 18 breaths per minute. And SAO2 is 99% on room air. On physical exam, he cannot passively or actively move his right leg without wincing in pain. AP and lateral radiographs of his right femur reveal an isolated oblique diaphyseal fracture. Radiographs of his other femur, knees, hip, and lumbar spine are unremarkable. Urine drug screen is positive for marijuana. Pain medications are provided and close reduction with a splint is applied. The patient is admitted to the orthopedic service. Let's continue with an introduction to orthopedic trauma. Remember that orthopedic trauma can be part of any high energy mechanism, such as from an MVC or a fall. Also remember that spinal or visceral injuries may coexist. In the ED setting, the goal is to quickly diagnose or rule out life or limb-threatening injuries. Non-threatening fractures can be reduced and immobilized, and pain relief and proper follow-up are crucial for appropriate discharge. Now let's discuss life and limb-threatening orthopedic injuries in more detail. All of the following would be appropriate reasons for emergent surgical consultation. For life-threatening injuries, these would include pelvic fracture, massive long bone injuries because of the high risk of fat emboli, vascular injury proximal to the knee and or the elbow, and traumatic amputations. Limb-threatening injuries would include compartment syndrome. Remember that this is associated with tibial plateau fractures. This may be the result of trauma with an axial load causing fracture of the tibial plateau on radiography or CT. Other injuries include open fractures, knee dislocations, which can injure the popliteal artery, and they require immediate reduction then evaluation of arterial injury. Fractures proximal to the knee and or the elbow, crush injuries, and fractures or dislocations of the ankle. Now let's discuss the classification of fractures. Fractures are described by the integrity of the skin, the location, the fracture pattern, and displacement. The integrity of the skin and soft tissue can refer to whether the fracture is closed or open. Remember that this can be determined by the presence of blood or fat droplets at the puncture site. The location refers to the fracture being epiphyseal, metaphyseal, or diaphyseal. The orientation or fracture pattern can be transverse. This is when the fracture is perpendicular to the long axis of the bone, and this suggests a direct high-energy trauma. It can also be oblique, which is when the fracture is angular, and this suggests rotational trauma. It can also be spiral, which is when there is a complex, multiplanar fracture line. This suggests rotational, low-energy trauma. It can be comminuted, when there are more than two fracture fragments. There may be an avulsion fracture, which is when there is a fragment that comes off of the bone due to tendon or ligament tear or pull. This suggests high-energy trauma, often in children. The fracture may be impacted, which is when there is simply impaction of the bone. This is commonly in the midline or the truncal skeleton. There may be a fissure, which is when the fracture is parallel to the long axis of the bone. 
There may be a green stick fracture, which is an incomplete fracture of the cortex. There may be a torus fracture, which is the result of a compressive force to a more flexible bone. This will result in bulging of the periosteum or the cortex on radiography. Displacement of the fracture refers to the distal fragment being in or not in anatomic alignment with the proximal fragment. If there is varus displacement, this means that the apex of the fracture moves away from midline. If there is valgus displacement, this means that the apex of the fracture moves towards midline. And with regards to fractures of the fingers in the hand, remember that the fractures of the distal phalanx are often associated with a subungual hematoma. Make sure to treat these with trephination and splinting if there is an underlying fracture. And in terms of imaging, radiographs should include a lateral cervical spine, an AP chest, and an AP pelvis radiograph, as well as an AP and lateral of all the injured bones. In terms of other studies, remember that the primary and secondary survey with resuscitation are key. Make sure to perform a SEEDS inspection. This refers to swelling, erythema, atrophy, deformity, and skin changes. Remember that there may be increased pain with passive stretch or pain out of proportion to injuries which suggest compartment syndrome. Make sure to palpate all bones and joints and actively move the joints that are affected and those above and below the injury. And make sure to assess the vascular and neurological status distal to the injury. And in terms of treatment, for all life and limb-threatening injuries, there should be surgical consultation, whether it be to general, vascular, or orthopedic surgery. Fracture management specifically includes reduction to maintain bone alignment and integrity. The reduction can be closed or open. For closed reduction, there should be traction applied in the long axis of the limb to reverse the mechanism that produced the fracture. This then fatigues the contracted muscles so that proper alignment can be achieved. And often, intravenous sedation and muscle relaxation will be used. Open reduction may be used if closed reduction fails or if the cast or traction cannot be applied due to the site, such as in the hip. It may also be used if the fracture is pathologic, such as in endocrinological or oncological cases, and in the cases of open fractures. Reduction is maintained via external or internal stabilization. External stabilization includes things like splints, casts, traction, and an external fixator, whereas internal stabilization includes things like percutaneous pinning, fixation with screws, plates, wires, or rods. And physical rehabilitation and therapy are needed to regain function and avoid joint stiffness. Remember that the goal of open fracture management is to minimize the risk of osteomyelitis. In order to do this, one should perform a gross debridement as well as irrigation with normal saline and apply a sterile dressing. One should also give tetanus prophylaxis with toxoid or immunoglobulin as needed and intravenous antibiotics for at least three days. This should include first-generation cephalosporins for gram-positives, vancomycin if there is concern or evidence of MRSA, aminoglycosides for gram-negatives, and penicillin should be added if the injury is soil-contaminated in order to cover for clostridium perfringens. Also make sure to reduce and splint the fracture, and the patient should be made NPO for definitive surgical irrigation and debridement within six to eight hours. Now that we've discussed the major points relating to orthopedic trauma, let's walk through some questions to apply what we've learned and get a sense of how the topic might be tested. For the first question, consider the following clinical scenario. 
A 33-year-old man presents to the emergency department after slamming his finger in the car door. He initially experienced severe pain, which is currently well-controlled with acetaminophen. The patient is otherwise healthy and does not take any medications. His temperature is 98.5 degrees Fahrenheit or 36.9 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 123 over 79. Pulse is 90 beats per minute. Respirations are 11 breaths per minute. And oxygen saturation is 97% on room air. Physical exam is notable for a subungual hematoma. A radiograph of the affected digits shows a smooth cortex without disruption of the bone. Which of the following is the most appropriate management for this patient? And the answer choices are Choice 1. Excision and histological examination. Choice 2. Fingernail removal. Choice 3. Observation. Choice 4. Operative repair. Or choice 5. Trephination. The best answer to this question is choice 5, trephination. This patient is presenting after trauma to his finger with a subungual hematoma. Given that he has no other associated injuries, trephination is the only management indicated. A subungual hematoma typically occurs after trauma to the finger, leading to a collection of blood under the fingernail. Depending on the mechanism, this can be associated with a distal phalanx fracture. Evaluation for a fracture should include a thorough history exam, and radiographs if indicated. If there are no other signs of injury, including nail bed dislocation or an open fracture, then management requires only trephination, which means putting a hole in the nail to allow blood to drain, as this alleviates the pressure on the nail bed matrix, thus preventing possible irreversible damage. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice 1. Excision and histological examination could be appropriate management of melanoma, which may present under the fingernails with a hyperpigmented, irregular skin lesion, or a quote-unquote barcode appearance if it is at the base of the nail. Note that a spontaneous subungual hematoma could be suggestive of melanoma. However, in the setting of trauma, it is a much less likely diagnosis. Choice 2. Fingernail removal should only be performed if there is also nail avulsion or nail fold disruption to allow for inspection of the nail bed and repair of any laceration. Failure to repair a nail bed laceration could lead to permanent deformity of the fingernail when it regrows. Choice 3. Observation is inappropriate as the accumulation of blood under the nail in a subungual hematoma could lead to ischemia and permanent injury to the nail bed. Whenever a subungual hematoma is present, trephination is indicated. Choice 4. Operative repair may be necessary for fractures. However, this patient has no fracture and only has a subungual hematoma which can be drained easily. Finally, a bullet summary. A subungual hematoma is common after trauma, presents with a collection of blood under the fingernail, and should be treated with trephination. For the second question, consider the following clinical scenario. A 33-year-old man presents to the emergency department after getting tackled while playing rugby. He complains of severe left knee pain initially which has improved since the event. He is otherwise healthy and does not take any medications. His temperature is 97.9 degrees Fahrenheit or 36.6 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 133 over 84. Pulse is 100 beats per minute. Respirations are 19 breaths per minute and oxygen saturation is 100% on room air. Physical exam is notable for a swollen and tender left knee. 
A radiograph is performed and demonstrates a posterior knee dislocation. Physical exam is notable for non-palpable left lower extremity pulses, a normal cardiopulmonary exam, normal sensation of the left lower extremity, and normal plantar flexion and extension. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? And the answer choices are choice 1, CT angiogram of the lower extremity, choice 2, CT scan of the knee, choice 3, heparin drip, choice 4, MRI of the knee, or choice 5, reduction of the knee. The best answer to this question is choice 5, reduction of the knee. This patient is presenting after trauma to his knee with a radiograph demonstrating a posterior knee dislocation and a loss of left lower extremity pulses, which are concerning for an injury to the popliteal artery. Immediate reduction of the knee is indicated. A posterior knee dislocation occurs with trauma to the lower extremity where the tibia is displaced posteriorly when compared to the femur. Patients will present with pain and there is a concern of injury to the popliteal artery, making this an orthopedic emergency. Injury to the popliteal artery can lead to a pulseless limb and to critical limb ischemia. The patient's lower extremity pulses should immediately be assessed, regardless of the presence of pulses, as the presence of does not rule out popliteal artery injury. Immediate reduction should occur to avoid any neurovascular complications. Further management involves a CT angiogram of the lower extremity after reduction to rule out any vascular injury. Let's also discuss why the other choices are incorrect. Choice 1. CT angiogram of the lower extremity would be appropriate to evaluate the vasculature in the lower extremity if the diagnosis of arterial injury was ambiguous or after reduction of the knee to assess for injury to the popliteal artery. It should never be performed in a knee dislocation with a pulseless lower extremity given that this is a limb-threatening diagnosis that requires immediate intervention. Choice 2. CT scan of the knee would be appropriate management of a knee fracture or tibial plateau fracture when planning for surgery but should never delay the reduction of a dislocated knee with a pulseless leg. Choice 3. Heparin drip would be the appropriate management of an acute pulseless leg thought to be secondary to an arterial embolism followed immediately by thrombectomy. This would typically present in a patient with a history of atrial fibrillation with pain, pallor, poikilothermia, paresthesias, paralysis, and sudden onset pulselessness. It would require an embolectomy to salvage the limb. Choice four, MRI of the knee is the appropriate management of evaluating for ligamentous injury, such as an ACL tear. Patients will present with sudden onset knee pain and swelling with laxity with traction of the tibia, causing anterior shifting relative to the femur. Treatment may involve immobilization in partial tears or surgical repair in complete tears. Finally, a bullet summary. Posterior dislocation of the knee can injure the popliteal artery and requires immediate reduction of the knee. That's all for this review about orthopedic trauma. We hope that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 2 and 3 podcast, a daily audio review session for MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. As a reminder, you can follow along with these podcast episodes by reviewing the topics directly on MedBullets.com. You can listen to these episodes on the MedBullets website or phone app while reading through the topic. If the MedBullets podcast has been valuable to you, we'd be thrilled if you considered leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow, right here, 
on the MedBullet Step 2 and 3 podcast.